Welcome to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. This is where we take a chapter-by-chapter approach to the scriptures that are assigned by the Come Follow Me curriculum of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. My name is Barry Hillam, and I hope that this podcast will be a benefit to you. In each episode, you will hear a short flyover summary for the scriptural chapter in question, followed by a verse-by-verse reading that is supplemented with commentary from parallel passages of scripture and from modern-day prophets. You might consider adjusting the playback speed in your favorite podcast player. With that, I'm glad you're with me. Let's get started. Alma, chapter 9. Well, as we know, so far in the book of Alma, the pattern uh, since Alma's ministry began at the end of Alma chapter 4, the pattern has been that we've received some commentary from Mormon to orient us, and we've learned from Mormon that Alma has traveled from one city to another and preached to the people there. He preached to those in Zarahemla. He preached to the people in the city of Gideon. Then he traveled to Melech and preached to them, and now he's in, in Ammonihah. And in each of these instances, with the exception of the city of Melech, we are treated to Alma's words as they are delivered to the cities in question. So Alma chapter 5 is Alma's sermon to the people of Zarahemla, and Alma chapter 7 is his sermon to the people in the city of Gideon. Well, now as we come to Alma chapter 9, and we've learned the story of Alma's arrival to the city of Ammonihah. Uh, For lack of a better term, we read of his false start there. Then he returns and meets Amulek and joins with him. Well, now as we turn the page and come to this chapter, Alma chapter 9, we will be treated to Alma's words. And uh, this time, it won't just be a one-chapter sermon, and then he moves on to another city, but we're going to go into a pattern here where we get Alma's words to the people in chapter 9, then we'll turn the page in Alma chapter 10 and hear from Amulek, And then in Alma chapter 11, we'll receive some uh, narration from Mormon. And then this interchange with Zeezrom will begin in uh, Alma chapter 11. So in this chapter, Alma chapter 9, we uh, do hear from Alma in first person. So this is not Mormon's narration anymore, uh, but it's Alma's first person address. And then he also um, will break from his address and, and talk about how he was received. We find that the people can't yet lay their hands upon Alma, much like with Abinadi, and that he's able to stand before them, as it says in verse 7, with boldness and to declare unto them. Then we'll find at the end of this chapter that the people attempted to imprison Alma after he's finished speaking to them, but again, they could not. But as we're given this narrative detail, even it is in first person. So what's happening here seems to be that we're reading something that comes from what Mormon at other points is called the record of Alma. So there most certainly was such a thing. For us as readers, this is Alma's fourth city in his ministry that began at the end of Alma chapter 4. But again, we don't have what he wrote to the people or said to the people in Melech. And so this is our third time uh, when we get to read Alma's words directly. And in this case, Uh, This is yet a third variation on the theme of repent. So that same thread that existed in Alma chapter 5 and also Alma chapter 7 will be in this, in Alma chapter 9, to repent. But in this case, this variation on this theme is quite different. Of course, it has to do, as we've spoken before, to the audience that Alma is speaking to. But in this case, when Alma talks about repentance, He'll go clear back and talk about Lehi. He'll talk about the captivity of his fathers. And we can remember that that was the charge that was given to Alma when he was first visited by the angel in Mosiah chapter 27, was to remember the captivity of his fathers and to discuss that. So he talks about Lehi, and he talks about the history and the future of the Lamanites and how that's intertwined with the future of the Nephites. And so this is a very different way of telling the people to repent, very different tack that Alma takes here compared to what we read in Alma chapter 7 and Alma chapter 5. Alma ends this in a way that I hope we we never are told this by a prophet uh, when he says, And now behold, my beloved brethren, for ye are my brethren, and ye ought to be beloved. Ye ought to bring forth works which are meet for repentance, seeing that your hearts have been grossly hardened against the words of God, 
and seeing that you're a lost and a fallen people. So again, the message is the same as we get the words of Alma in this new city. It is to repent, but his way of doing it because of the state of the people here is quite different than in these previous two chapters of Alma 7 and Alma 5. So with that as an introduction, here's a quick look at the structure of the chapter. In the first section of this chapter, in verses 1 through 6, we find Alma introducing or prefacing his interchange with the people. And again, it's in first person. It's in Alma's language. We were given the words of the people in Ammonihah in the previous chapter, and Alma provides us with their words here, a little bit at least. In verse 2, uh, he quotes them as saying, who, are, who art thou? Suppose ye that we shall believe the testimony of one man, although he should preach unto us that the earth should pass away. So that's what Alma is up against here. So who art thou, they say. And then in verse 6, they say, And who is God that sendeth no more authority than one among this people to declare unto them the truth of such great and marvelous things? We can almost imagine them putting air quotes around the phrase great and marvelous things. Well, this sounds almost identical to King Noah and the people of the city of Shilom and perhaps the city of Lehi-Nephi. When Abinadi came to the land of Nephi, and prophesied to those people, they said, Who art thou, and who is God? Or King Noah said those things. So this is very similar. So that's what we'll read in this first section. Now verse 7 will show us that the people do not lay their hands on Alma. They do try to, just like in the Abinadi account, uh, but they can't. And so Alma will deliver them a sermon, and he is telling us this in kind of an understated way. Now uh, in verses 8 through 13... Alma will discuss Lehi, and this is consistent, again, with Alma's message of the captivity of his fathers. This is a theme for Alma, and of course, it was a theme during that whole uh, section in the book of Mosiah as well when we talked about captivity, and this is the captivity that Alma uh, is usually hearkening to in his previous message, but this time uh, he's going clear back to the captivity of Father Lehi, and he talks about his history. Then in verses 14 through 17, Alma talks specifically about the history and really the future of the Lamanite people. Then he will bring the Nephites back into the discussion in verses 18 through 24 and discuss the future of the Nephites and how that future is intertwined with the future of the Lamanites. He'll talk about the way in which the Nephites will be destroyed from off the face of the earth and how the promises of the Lord are extended to the Lamanites. Then in verses 25 through 29, Alma will relate the message of an angel. Now, we don't know if this is the same angel that appeared to Alma or if this is the same instance. Uh, It seems like it may be a broader message that might have come from other scripture that Alma is quoting from. It's hard to say for sure, but we do read in verse 29 Uh, where Alma says, Behold, this is the voice of the angel crying unto the people. So it's in the preceding uh, five verses uh, that Alma will deliver that message to the people. It's messianic in nature. It talks about the coming of the Son of God and how it will come in his glory and how it's critical, therefore, to repent. Now, verse 30, we get Alma's concluding comment to the people. Uh, It's that scathing comment that I referenced earlier where where he calls them his beloved brethren, and then he says, at least ye ought to be beloved. And uh, that's how he ends his message. And then Alma returns to a narrative style that's still in first person and tells us how the people responded to his message on this occasion. They tried to imprison him, but they, they couldn't do it. The Lord didn't suffer them that they should take me at that time and cast me into prison, as it says in verse 33. But we can tell from the tone of this that Alma may indeed expect to be imprisoned at another time. And of course he was, and Mormon intimated that at the end of the previous chapter. Then in the final verse of this chapter, verse 34, we find that there's going to be a new speaker as we turn the page, and that Alma's companion, Amulek, will not be a silent companion as the text goes on, uh, but as we will discover, uh, we're going to hear from Amulek quite a lot. The the next chapter will be all his words, and this will happen at several other points in the book of Alma, and we'll be given great scriptural treasures from Amulek directly as we go on. 
And all of that is prefaced here in verse 34, where it says that Amulek went and stood forth and began to preach unto them also, and that Amulek's words are not all written, only a part of his words are written. So Amulek uh, was a great prophet in his own right, as we will discover uh, um, in subsequent chapters. Here's a reading then of the chapter, and it does begin with a superscript. It says, The words of Alma, and also the words of Amulek, which were declared unto the people who were in the land of Ammonihah. And also they are cast into prison and delivered by the miraculous power of God which was in them, according to the record of Alma. Once again, we can see that there is such a thing as the record of Alma, and it's clearly being pulled from here in this chapter. And then in italics, uh, it says that this comprises chapters 9 through 14. We know that chapters 15 and 16 are still taking place in the city of Ammonihah, but it's this section that really uh, where we're given the words of Alma and Amulek, and it kind of goes back and forth. So in chapter 9 here, it's all the words of Alma, and chapter 10 will be the words of Amulek. Chapter 11 will have kind of an, an interlude from Mormon where he discusses currency and some other issues, and then this interchange that takes place between Amulek and Zeezrom. Then Amulek, or excuse me, Alma will then take over in uh, chapter 12, and he will speak. He will continue to speak in chapter 13, that great uh, chapter that talks about priesthood and uh, pre-earth life. And then uh, chapter 14, we'll come back to some narrative storytelling. With respect to this superscript, Brant Gardner has written, the superscription to Alma 9 is included in the printer's manuscript and the 1830 edition. The original manuscript is not extant for this chapter. There is no line break between this introduction and what we have in the first verse. The separation of the introduction from the text was done as part of the typesetting for the 1830 edition. Now verse 1, as we hear from Alma directly. And again, I, Alma, having been commanded of God that I should take Amulek and go forth and preach unto this people, or the people who were in the city of Ammonihah, it came to pass as I began to preach unto them, they began to contend with me, saying, Who art thou? Suppose ye that we shall believe the testimony of one man, although he should preach unto us that the earth should pass away? So as we consider this shift and we see that Alma himself is the narrator of what is happening, and then, of course, we'll get his actual words. Uh, Bruce R. McConkie has observed this, or excuse me, McConkie and Millet have observed this and simply say that Mormon seems to be quoting here from Alma's own account of his encounter with the people of Ammonihah, an account which presumably was written sometime after the preaching. So it seems that at some point, Alma wrote all of this later, and this was part of what is called the record of Alma in the superscript. Now, coming back then to the words of the people, uh, as they say that uh, they compare this one man, this one witness, Alma, who's speaking to them, uh, if he's going to say something of such great import that the uh, earth should actually pass away, uh, shouldn't it come in the form of something besides one man? So uh, earlier they, they, they said, we don't really respect your authority. You, you're no longer the chief judge. You gave that to Nephiha, and your only authority is that as, 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 of an, as an ecclesiastical leader, and we don't really respect that because we're not of your church. So to us, you're just a man. That's kind of what we're getting here in verse 2. So why should we believe the words of one man who is coming from a, a faith tradition, to use a modern colloquialism, that we don't even respect or adhere to, and you're going to tell us that the whole earth is going to pass away. So that's what Alma is up against. And uh, here's some commentary on this from John Welch. Um, this, this may have been kind of a reference to the law of Moses, really, when they talk about one man. Um, John Welch says that, As Moses had taught, one witness shall not rise up against a man for any iniquity. And this is a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. One witness shall not rise up against a man for any iniquity or for any sin in any sin that he sinneth at the mouth of two witnesses or at the mouth of three witnesses shall the matter be established. Now we know, of course, that um, Amulek is with Alma at this time. Uh, nevertheless, that's uh, what the people are saying, that it's the testimony of one man. So now John Welch says this in his book, Legal Cases in the Book of Mormon. The people of Ammonihah rejected Alma's testimony out of arrogance and incredulity, to be sure, 
but their rejection also had legal grounds. Their penchant for legal detail manifests itself when they reject Alma's testimony on the technicality that he appeared to be a sole witness or testifier, rather than addressing the truthfulness of Alma's claims by accusing him of being a false witness or a false prophet, as had been the failed strategy of King Noah and his priests against Abinadi. Amazingly, they're saying something similar later in this chapter too, who art thou and who art God? These people argued that if God were to condemn this city as an apostate city, he would need more than one witness to stand against it in such a weighty matter. Who art thou? Suppose ye that ye shall believe the testimony of one man, although he should preach unto us that the earth should pass away? Who is God that sendeth no more authority than one man among this people? An accusation such as this one for apostasy, they correctly and forcefully argued, needed to be supported by two witnesses. If there be found among you within any of thy gates transgressing this covenant, and hath gone and served other gods at the mouth of two witnesses or three witnesses, shall he that is worthy of death be put to death. But at the mouth of one witness he shall not be put to death. That's out of Deuteronomy 17, whereas the previous uh, reference was Deuteronomy 19. So these people seem to be citing uh, um, the law itself, or the law of Moses. And Welch continues, In general, Pentateuchal law required that one witness shall not rise up against a man for any iniquity or for any sin, in any sin that he sinneth at the mouth of two witnesses or at the mouth of three witnesses, shall the matter be established. This rule was especially well established and observed about the time of Lehi and during the Neo-Babylonian period. So that really, I think, is wonderful insight by John Welch as to why these people would point out that only one man is telling them that... um, the earth shall pass away. So verse 3, Alma says, Now they understood not the words which they spake, for they knew not that the earth should pass away. And they said also, and I would just add here that uh, we're about to enter a period here uh, where we're going to see that the people are, are very much about the law. So it's appropriate here to make this connection, I think, because they really are trying to take the liberty of the people away in the city of Ammonihah by means of the law. That will become even more clear. So uh, when Alma says they understood not the words which they spake in verse 3, um, it's not for lack of erudition. Uh, they were definitely sophisticates. And uh, Zeezrom will make that clear later too. Then verse 4, And they said also, We will not believe thy word if thou shouldst prophesy that this great city should be destroyed in one day. Now, we're just learning contextually here that that's what Alma has told them, so we'll have to come back to that uh, later. Now, they knew not that God could do such marvelous works, for they were a hard-hearted and a stiff-necked people. And they said, Who is God that sendeth no more authority than one man among this people to declare unto them the truth of such great and marvelous things? A terrible hubris there in that statement, I think. Uh, This is from Ogden and Skinner. They say, Alma got a cold reception and brusque rejection among the Ammonihaites. They said, in essence, who do you think you are? We are not going to listen to you even if you were to prophesy that this great city should be destroyed in one day, which is literally what happened later in Alma chapter 16. So as this is going, it doesn't seem like it will end well and that the people are not going to hear Alma's words any further. And they do what, has, what was done to Abinadi. They, they seek to lay their hands on him. So we read in verse 7, And they stood forth to lay their hands on me, but behold, they did not. And that's, that's, that's all that's said. It's quite understated, but it's, it's clear that they could not. And I stood with boldness to declare unto them, Yea, I did boldly testify unto them, saying. And now, here is Alma's address to these people. He's first going to talk about the captivity of his fathers and go into the Lehi story. Behold, O ye wicked and perverse generation, how have ye forgotten the tradition of your fathers? Yea, how soon ye have forgotten the commandments of God. Of course, that would have been an affront to them because they were just citing the commandments of God. They're talking about what's in Deuteronomy and about the number of witnesses that have to come forward before someone can be charged. He's telling them they have forgotten the commandments of God. Do you not remember that our father Lehi was brought out of Jerusalem by the hand of God? Do ye not remember 
that they were all led by him through the wilderness. So remember at the beginning of Alma chapter 5, Alma starts to talk about the captivity of our fathers, as he says. But in that case, he's talking about the people of Alma the elder and their experience in the city of Shilom, in the land of Nephi, and then their their time at the waters of Mormon, and then their time in the land of Helam, and then when they were delivered from bondage there. And then most importantly, he talks about how they were delivered spiritually from their bondage. Well, this time Alma is going to go back much further and talk about Lehi. This will set the stage for him to talk about the difference between the, Lehi, uh, the, the, the excuse me the Lamanites and the Nephites as we go on. So again, verse nine: Do ye not remember that our father Lehi was brought out of Jerusalem by the hand of God? Do ye not remember that they were all led by him through the wilderness? And have ye forgotten so soon how many times he delivered our fathers out of the hands of their enemies? and preserved them from being destroyed, even by the hands of their own brethren. So these people that are so antagonistic to Alma, they're citing scripture, really, when they say that only one person testifies about the destruction of the world. So they're citing the law, and they're citing scriptures. So Alma knows this, and he's saying that if you are students of the scripture, then why aren't you remembering the captivity of your fathers, and how many times he delivered them and in verse 11, yea, and if and by the way, I think this tells us how we should read the scriptures. There are several ways that we can do so, but it's this it's this meta narrative we might say where we're really uh, over and over and over again learning from the scriptures that there's such a thing as a deliverance from bondage and that there there is a pattern of exile that reiterates over and over through scriptures and uh, we must remember that we too are in exile. Uh, in in mortality itself, and that we are looking forward to deliverance as well. Verse 10, And have ye forgotten so soon how many times he delivered our fathers out of the hands of their enemies and preserved them from being destroyed, even by the hands of their own brethren? Yea, and if it had not been for his matchless power and his mercy and his long suffering towards us, we should unavoidably have been cut off from the face of the earth long before this period of time, and perhaps been consigned to a state of endless misery and woe. Now, Reynolds and Sojal have written of this statement, The people of Ammonihah gave little heed to the fact that a divine guidance had piloted their great ancestor Lehi across the ocean to the land of Zion. They also forgot how many times their repentant brethren had been saved from destruction at the hands of the Lamanites through God's long-suffering and his mercy. If it had not been that God had protected and preserved the Ammonihaites in spite of their many abuses of his grace, Alma cautioned them that they too might have suffered even unto death as had many others. Verse 12, Behold, now I say unto you that he commandeth you to repent, and except ye repent, ye can in no wise inherit the kingdom of God. But behold, this is not all. He has commanded you to repent, or he will utterly destroy you from off the face of the earth. Yea, he will visit you in his anger, and in his fierce anger he will not turn away. So there is the the idea that the people in the city of Ammonihah will be destroyed uh, here in verse 12. But uh, this is an even uh, worse message than that. It's a broader message than that. And Alma will go on to talk about the fate of the Nephites more generally if they don't remember these things that he's talking about, and if the Lord does, visit them in his anger. Verse 13, Behold, do ye not remember the words which ye spake unto Lehi, saying, that inasmuch as ye shall keep my commandments, ye shall prosper in the land? And again it is said, that inasmuch as ye will not keep my commandments, ye shall be cut off from the presence of the Lord. This is from Donald Perry, Teaching in Black and White. And this has been culled by Thomas Arvaleta in his Book of Mormon Study Guide. Alma frequently used a highly significant literary technique, a figure of speech called antithetical parallelism, which presents the teaching in plainest terms possible by contrasting it with an opposite. Use of this technique was first noticed in the Bible. Bishop Robert Louth is credited with calling attention to the importance and prevalence of biblical parallelisms. Others have carried his work further, noting that parallelism is the basic feature of biblical songs, and for that matter, of most of the sayings, proverbs, laws, laments, blessings, curses, prayers, and speeches found in the Bible. And of course, that's true, and we, um, we often see these parallel statements throughout Isaiah, for example. 
The following example of antithetic structure is well attested in the Book of Mormon. In the Book of Alma alone, this passage is found five times. One, inasmuch as ye shall keep my commandments. Two, ye shall prosper in the land. Now, here, here it's restated again in the manner of parallelism, but the, the negative version of it is stated, so that's why it's called antithetical parallelism. So here is one, this is the same as the previous one statement, but it's antithetical. And again, it is said that, inasmuch as ye will not keep my commandments, and two, ye shall be cut off from the presence of the Lord. Note the connection between keeping the commandments and prospering in the land. I believe it speaks of both temporal and spiritual prosperity, Perry says, and the correspondence between disobedience and being cut off from God's presence. The words are clear, the statements are expressed with simplicity, and the thesis and antithesis are portrayed with great plainness. Now that Alma has talked about Lehi, he will now discuss the Lamanites, and then later he'll discuss the Nephites. So verse 14, now, I would that ye should remember that inasmuch as the Lamanites have not kept the commandments of God, they have been cut off from the presence of the Lord. Now, we see that the word of the Lord has been verified in this thing, and the Lamanites have been cut off from his presence from the beginning of their transgressions in the land. So just having used that phrase, cut off from the presence of the Lord, in verse 13, Alma is now explaining that that indeed is what happened to the Lamanites. So Alma, in essence, is saying, I can give you an example of this principle about how you will be cut off from the presence of the Lord if you don't keep his commandments, and it has already happened to the Lamanites. So verse 15, Nevertheless, I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable for them in the day of judgment than for you if ye remain in your sins, and even more tolerable for them in this life than for you, except ye repent. So the Lamanites are an example of being cut off from the presence of the Lord. But as bad as it has been for them and will be for them, it'll be even worse for you. Ogden and Skinner have written this in a work called Four Gospels. Alma outlined the ways the people of Nephi had been blessed by God. They had, one, received knowledge of things past, present, and future according to their desires. Two, they had been visited by the Spirit of God. Three, they conversed with angels. Four, they heard the voice of the Lord. Five, they received the spirit of revelation. Six, they received spiritual gifts. Seven, they had been spared destruction and delivered from bondage time after time. And eight, had been given material prosperity. No wonder Alma then said, it shall be more tolerable for the Lamanites in the day of judgment than for you. Compare the similar pronouncement made by Jesus on Capernaum, Chorazin, and Bethsaida. On falling into grave transgressions, after receiving so much light and knowledge, being highly favored with the Spirit of God and many spiritual gifts, being saved from wars, famines, and diseases, and being greatly prospered. So the the Lamanites certainly were considered the enemies of those who lived in the city of Ammonihah, even though they had this state of wickedness as a commonality between them. And so this would have been particularly inflammatory to the people of Ammonihah, as Alma is telling them this, He continues in verse 16, after having told them again that it's going to be still more tolerable for the Lamanites than it will be for you. And here is the reasoning for that statement. For there are many promises which are extended to the Lamanites, for it is because of the traditions of their fathers that caused them to remain in their state of ignorance. Therefore, the Lord will be merciful unto them and prolong their existence in the land. McConkie and Millet have written this, The promises of the Lord to the Lamanites are sure and certain because their sins were so often a result of incorrect traditions. As opposed to the Nephites who sinned against great light, God will be merciful to them. Sidney B. Sperry has written in his Book of Mormon Compendium, The Lamanites were ignorant because of the traditions of their fathers, but the Nephites, on the other hand, had been blessed with the spirit of prophecy and the spirit of revelation, the gift of speaking with tongues, the gift of preaching, the gift of the Holy Ghost, and the gift of translation. Under these conditions, they should have exhibited the fruits of God's blessings to them. Alma emphasized the fact that the Lord had sent him to visit his people and call them to repentance so that they would have no excuse. Not only that, but he declared that in the near future, the Son of God should come and redeem those baptized unto repentance through faith on his name. 
Well, as is often the case, when we read Isaiah, for example, there is an application for what Isaiah is saying uh, to the people of his time, but also to the people of a future time. And here Alma is speaking to the people of Ammonihah, but he's also clearly speaking more broadly of the pending destruction of the Nephites. And when Sperry is talking about the way in which the Nephites had tongues and preaching and the Holy Ghost and even the gift of translation, uh, he seems to be referring more broadly to the gifts that were given to the Nephites throughout their time uh, in the Americas prior to their destruction. Um, And so their destruction was all the more harsh uh, since their accountability was much higher. Whether all of these gifts were present in the land of Ammonihah or the city of Ammonihah is a different question, and uh, we don't know the answer for sure. What we do know, though, is that this is quite a dangerous state to be in for the people of Ammonihah. Uh, they they clearly are ignorant. Uh, to have someone standing before them with the spiritual stature of Alma and to be rejecting him in this way uh, is certainly a matter of ignorance. This ignorance is coming from pride. Uh, the antidote for this problem is expressed very well in Doctrine and Covenants section 136, verses 32 through 33. Let him that is ignorant learn wisdom by humbling himself and calling upon the Lord his God, that his eyes may be opened that he may see, and his ears opened that he may hear. For my spirit is sent forth into the world to enlighten the humble and contrite, and to the condemnation of the ungodly. Then Alma continues with this tone in verse 17, kind of a defense of the Lamanites, really, which again would have been quite an affront to the people of Ammonihah. He says, And at some period of time, they, meaning the Lamanites, will be brought to believe in his word and to know of the incorrectness of the traditions of their fathers. And many of them will be saved, for the Lord will be merciful unto all who call on his name. Alma is speaking very prophetically here, and we will see this as the Book of Mormon narrative goes on. Uh, We'll find that in many instances, the Lamanites became righteous. We can think of Samuel, the Lamanite, for example, and his great prophecies that had to do with the coming of the Savior. Of course, uh, more close to to the point is that while uh, Alma is saying these things to the people of Ammonihah, he certainly knows that his great friends and colleagues, his brethren, the sons of Mosiah, they are among the Lamanites at this time in preaching. And Alma doesn't know how that story will end yet. Uh, Their meeting will take place in Alma chapter 17. But Alma can only hope at this point that the sons of Mosiah are having success among the Lamanites. So he, it's, it's, um, it's clear to him as he's saying this to the people of Ammonihah that there is preaching by missionaries happening at this very moment in the land of Nephi. And so he has thought about these things, and perhaps during that time when he was resting in the land of Zarahemla, he had time to think about uh, his great friends and brethren, the sons of Mosiah, and how they're doing in the land of Nephi. Maybe he even tried somehow to correspond with them at that point. Now Alma will continue with this line of thinking in verse 18. But behold, I say unto you, that if ye persist in your wickedness, that your days shall not be prolonged in the land, for the Lamanites shall be sent upon you. Now, of course, that's, that's Mosaic language, too, that your days shall not be prolonged in the land. For the Lamanites shall be sent upon you, and if ye repent not, they shall come in a time when you know not, and ye shall be visited with utter destruction, and it shall be according to the fierce anger of the Lord." Again, we can think of the Abinadi story and how implausible it seemed to the people during King Noah's time that such a thing could ever happen, and we know that it most certainly did. Verse 19, For he will not suffer you that ye shall live in your iniquities to destroy his people. I say unto you, Nay, he would rather suffer that the Lamanites might destroy all his people who are called the people of Nephi, if it were possible that they could fall into sins and transgressions after having so much light and so much knowledge given unto them of the Lord their God. So again, almost a defense of the Lamanites, or at least a statement that shows the people of Ammonihah that the Lamanites could be used as an instrument by the Lord to destroy those who have sinned against his light. We might think at this point of Isaiah's discussion of the Assyrian king, uh, because there was a point in time when he talked about the Assyrian king 
being an instrument in the, the Lord's hands. Now, that's not the exact language that is used, but the Assyrian king uh, is used to destroy the wicked Israelites. It's at that point as a reader that we might say, well, then does the Lord actually have some sort of an alliance with the Assyrian king that he would use him as an instrument? And we might ask the same here. The Lamanites are clearly in their wickedness, and so when they come to destroy the Nephites, we would say, well, does, does the Lord have some sort of an alliance with these wicked Lamanites, or is he, is he using them in that way? Well, Isaiah goes on to explain this concept very clearly. In Isaiah chapter 10, uh, he, he makes it clear that although the king of Assyria uh, is an instrument in this sense, that's not what the king of Assyria's intentions are. His intentions are not aligned with God's. Isaiah says in verse 7, How be it, he meaneth not so, meaning the king of Assyria, neither doth his heart think so. In other words, he does not meaneth the same thing as God, nor is his heart aligned with God. But in his heart, in, I believe it's Sennacherib, in, in the king of Assyria's heart, it is to destroy and cut off nations, not a few And he goes on and talks about how the king of Assyria says, Are not my princes altogether kings? Is not Kalno, as uh, Carchemish, is not Hamath, as Arpad, is not Samaria, as Damascus? Then he says in verse 13, By the strength of my hand and by my wisdom have I done these things, for I am prudent and I have moved the borders of the people. He's saying he has so much power that he can move the people around and have robbed their treasures, and I have put down the inhabitants like a valiant man. So at this point, Isaiah makes it clear that no, uh, that's not really the source of your power. You, king of Assyria, in this case, and you, Lamanites, in this case, that Alma is speaking of, you're just a tool that the Lord uses in this moment, but your will is not aligned with him. You're not in an alliance with him. And that's why Isaiah then says, shall the axe boast itself against him that heweth therewith? Shall the saw magnify itself against him that shaketh it? Uh, As if the rod should shake itself against them that lift it up, or as, as the staff would lift up itself as if it were no wood. So as we wonder on this, and Alma talks about the Lamanites being used to destroy the Nephites, that's kind of the context He's defending the Lamanites, but only in the sense that they have inherited wicked traditions. But when they, in their own wickedness, destroy the Nephites, uh, that is not because they are any more aligned with the Lord's will than the king of Assyria's heart is aligned with God's. So now verse 19, with that in mind, For he will not suffer you, that ye shall live in your iniquities to destroy his people. I say unto you, Nay, he would rather suffer that the Lamanites might destroy all his people who are called the people of Nephi, if it were possible that they could fall into sins and transgressions after having so much light and so much knowledge given unto them of the Lord their God. So a rereading of that verse. Now verse 20, Yea, after having been such a highly favored people of the Lord, yea, after having been favored above every other nation, kindred, tongue, or people, After having had all things made known unto them according to their desires and to their faith and prayers of that which has been and which is and which is to come, having been visited by the Spirit of God, having conversed with angels and having been spoken unto by the voice of the Lord, and having the spirit of prophecy and the spirit of revelation and also many gifts, the gift of speaking with tongues and the gift of preaching, the gift of the Holy Ghost and the gift of translation." Yea, and after having been delivered of God out of the land of Jerusalem by the hand of the Lord, having been saved from famine and from sickness and all manner of diseases of every kind, and they having waxed strong in battle, that they might not that, that they might not be destroyed, having been brought out of bondage time after time, and having been kept and preserved until now, and they have been prospered until they are rich in all manner of things. So Alma is broadening the scope of this discussion to the Nephites more generally. Um, and he's, he's linking the people of Ammonihah to this people. And now I say unto you that if this people who had received so many blessings from the hand of the Lord should transgress contrary to the light and knowledge which they do have, 
I say unto you that if this be the case, that if they should fall into transgression, it would be far more tolerable for the Lamanites than for them. That's the exact same language that Alma used in verse 15, saying, and even more tolerable for them in this life than for you except you repent. So it's almost as though he's uh, giving them a persuasive essay, and uh, he concludes in the same way that he began in verse 23. The Book of Mormon Institute manual says, Alma warned that although the Lamanites were a wicked people at that time, the Lord would look more favorably upon them than upon the people of Ammonihah on the Day of Judgment. The Lamanites were following incorrect traditions that had been handed down to them, while the Nephites in general, and the people of Ammonihah in particular, had been a highly favored people of the Lord, above every other nation, kindred, tongue, or people. With great blessings come great responsibilities. Sister Sherry L. Du, then a counselor of the Relief Society General Presidency, taught, Unto whom much is given, much is required, and at times the demands of discipleship are heavy. But shouldn't we expect the journey towards eternal glory to stretch us? We sometimes rationalize our preoccupation with this world and our casual attempts to grow spiritually by trying to console each other with the notion that living the gospel really shouldn't require all that much of us. The Lord's standard of behavior will always be more demanding than the world's, but then the Lord's rewards are infinitely more glorious, including true joy, peace, and salvation. That uh, is from a conference talk by Sister Dew in October of 1999 called We Are Women of God. Richard Cowan has written in New Meaning of Restoration, Alma pointed out that there is a relationship between understanding gospel principles and being accountable for our actions. He warned the wicked Nephites to Ammonihah in Ammonihah, it would be far more tolerable for the Lamanites than for them because the Lamanites had sinned in ignorance. Elder George Albert Smith similarly declared, We will not be judged as our brothers and sisters of the world are judged, but according to the greater opportunities placed in our keeping. Then Alma says in verse 24, after having repeated this point, that it will be more tolerable for them than for you. For behold, the promises of the Lord are extended to the Lamanites, but they are not unto you if ye transgress. For has not the Lord expressed promises and firmly decreed that if ye will rebel against him, that ye shall be utterly destroyed from off the face of the earth? And that, as we can see, it's an interrogative, it's a question, kind of like how he asked so many questions of the people of Zarahemla in Alma chapter 5. This idea of the Nephites being utterly destroyed from off the face of the earth, uh, what a statement. And it has dual fulfillment as we look forward in the Book of Mormon, because it has fulfillment for the people of the city of Ammonihah, and it also has fulfillment for the Nephites more generally. In Alma chapter 16, verse 9, it says, And thus ended the eleventh year of the judges, the Lamanites having been driven out of the land, and the people of Ammonihah were destroyed. Yea, every living soul of the Ammonihahites was destroyed and also their great city, which they said God could not destroy because of its greatness. So that does come to pass later, and, and uh, just very only a couple years later, we know that Alma is now in the 10th year of the reign of the judges as we're reading this. Uh, that's, that, that kind of began when he left the land of Zarahemla after he had rested up until the end of the ninth year of the reign of the judges. And it's only in the 11th year then, a year later, that Ammonihah is destroyed. So as Alma is saying that she'll be utterly destroyed from off the face of the earth, he's talking about something that's going to happen in a year. Now in Mormon, chapter 6, verse 15, we read of the downfall of the Nephites more generally. And it came to pass that there were ten more who did fall by the sword with their ten thousand each. Yea, even all my people, save it were those twenty and four who were with me, and also a few who had escaped into the south countries, and a few who had deserted over unto the Lamanites had fallen and their flesh and bones and blood lay upon the face of the earth, being left by the hands of those who slew them to molder upon the land and to crumble and to return to their mother earth. So here in verse 24, Alma has said, destroyed from off the face of the earth. And Mormon's language later is that the earth uh, was the the things that their bones and their blood and their bodies uh, returned to. Now in verse 25, Alma will turn to the message that was given from an angel. And now for this cause that ye may not be destroyed, 
the Lord has sent his angel to visit many of his people, declaring unto them that they must go forth and cry mightily unto this people, saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is nigh at hand. So perhaps he's talking about the angel that visited him and also that visited uh, Amulek. That would be one way of interpreting that. But to their question of how could it be that only one man could tell us that all these things are going to happen, we're going to have to have two witnesses at least. We'll, we'll soon hear from Amulek. And now Alma is telling the people that it's not just coming from him, it's also coming from an angel. So verse 26, And not many days hence, the Son of God shall come in his glory. So now Alma, kind of like Isaiah, is moving and uh, he's talking about the people of Ammonihah, but then he moves forward to the destruction, the ultimate destruction of the Nephites. And now he's moving forward to the coming of the Messiah. So he's moving through different epochs as he prophesies to the people. And his glory shall be the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace, equity, and truth, full of patience, mercy, and long-suffering, quick to hear the cries of his people and to answer their prayers. McConkie and Millet have written that Jesus Christ enjoyed the glory and power of the eternal Father while in mortality because he was the only begotten Son of the Father in the flesh, because he inherited the powers of the Father from that exalted sire. So this allows us for just a moment to kind of pause or to move out of the context uh, that Alma is in as he's speaking to the people of, of Ammonihah and to look at the nature of the Savior's coming and, and how it says in verse 26 that he'll come in his glory and this glory shall be the glory of the only begotten of the Father. So that's what McConkie and Millet are emphasizing there. Now Alma continues in describing this great Redeemer who will come and also remem- reminding the people that these are the words of the angel And behold, he cometh to redeem those who will be baptized unto repentance through faith on his name. Therefore, prepare ye the way of the Lord. For the time is at hand that all men shall reap a reward of their works according to that which they have been. If they have been righteous, they shall reap the salvation of their souls according to the power and deliverance of Jesus Christ. And if they have been evil, they shall reap the damnation of their souls according to the power and captivation of the devil." Then Alma ends this segment by saying, Now behold, this is the voice of the angel crying unto the people. This statement then of the coming of the Redeemer to the earth and his salvation of all mankind and their ultimate judgment, um, this is uh, really central to all of Scripture. Uh, President J. Reuben Clark said, I believe that our Heavenly Father wants to save every one of his children. I do not think he intends to shut any of us off because of some slight transgression, some slight failure to observe some rule or regulation. There are the great elementals that we must observe, but he is not going to be captious about the lesser things. I believe that his juridical concept of his dealings with his children could be expressed in this way. I believe that in his justice and mercy, he will give us the maximum reward for our acts, give us all that he can give. And in the reverse, I believe that he will impose upon us the minimum penalty which it is possible for him to impose. Now here is Alma's concluding comment to the people in verse 30 before we discover how they respond. And now, my beloved brethren, for ye are my brethren, and ye ought to be beloved, and ye ought to bring forth works which are meet for repentance, seeing that your hearts have been grossly hardened against the word of God, and seeing that ye are lost and a fallen people. What a way to end this sermon. And remember that this is a captive audience. They tried earlier to lay hands upon Alma, but could not. And he kind of understated that at the beginning of this chapter, but it's clear that uh, he's being preserved and that they're being held back by the power of God as he speaks to them. And now we find out how they responded to this. In verse 31, Now it came to pass that when I, Alma, had spoken these words, behold, the people were wroth with me because I said unto them that they were a hard-hearted and a stiff-necked people. And also because I said unto them that they were a lost and a fallen people, they were angry with me and sought to lay their hands upon me that they might cast me into prison. Interesting, I think, that Alma says, after everything that he has said and that we have read here, that he says it's that, Uh, They were particularly inflamed. They were wroth because he accused them of being hard-hearted and stiff-necked. And 
These are people that are calling upon the law of Moses in their initial question to him, uh, asking him why only one witness could bring such a charge against them. And so they would have had a sense for the children of Israel and that they were hard-hearted and stiff-necked. And Alma is making a connection between the people of Ammonihah and and the children of Israel after they had made their own connection by calling upon the law of Moses. So it's particularly inflammatory to them. Then, uh, unsurprisingly, much like with Abinadi in verse 32, and also because I said unto them that they were a lost and a fallen people, they were angry with me and sought to lay their hands upon me that they might cast me into prison. But it came to pass that the Lord did not suffer them that they should take me at that time and cast me into prison. There's, I think, a tone of understatement with that as well. We don't know how it is that the Lord did not suffer them that they should take Alma, but clearly the power of the Lord would have been on display at this point if the people were unable to apprehend Alma. So that's how this story ends, as told to us directly by Alma, and he gives us so many of his own words in it. So very beautiful chapter. Now in verse 34, the final verse of this chapter we discover that Amulek is going to speak next. So this is kind of a preface to all that follows uh, with what Amulek will speak uh, to us in the Book of Mormon. So there are many more chapters to come where we will hear from him. And verse 34 says, And it came to pass that Amulek went and stood forth and began to preach unto them also. Now the words of Amulek are not all written. Nevertheless, a part of his words are written in this book. The same, of course, could be said for Alma. And Amulek is um, very much his equal, it seems, in the way that he speaks to the people and even as he stands before Zeezrom. So we have much to look forward to as we read the words of Amulek. So for now, this brings us to the end of Alma chapter 9. Thank you for listening to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. I want to acknowledge the resources that have helped me prepare this and previous episodes of this podcast. Grant Hardy's Reader's Edition of the Book of Mormon has helped me with the sectional divisions in these chapters. Kelly Ogden and Andrew Skinner's verse-by-verse commentary on the Book of Mormon has provided me with rich commentary. I also want to acknowledge a new resource that I've used for the last few chapters, which is the Book of Mormon Study Guide the revised edition from Thomas R. Valletta. Parallel passages of scripture and general conference addresses that come to mind also play a prominent role in this podcast, as do my own thoughts and writings. For them and any errors that you find in them, I, of course, am solely responsible. I hope that this podcast has had the effect of drawing you to the scriptural text that is so rich with detail and generous with truths that can help us navigate through our own lives, and most importantly, draw closer to God in our study of His Word. So thank you for listening.